I'm Jake Corley. And I'm Mark LaCour. You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by Red Wing. This is the show for busy oil professionals who want to quickly keep their fingers on the pulse of the industry. Welcome back to another episode of Oil & Gas This Week. You're listening to episode 107. What's going on, Mark? Uh, what's going on with your legs, Jake? Oh, man, I am so sunburned. My wife made plans to go kayaking, and if you've never seen me, I'm pretty white, and I haven't really gotten too much sun lately, and so now I look like a lobster. So, Yeah, so audience, maybe we should all chip in and get Jake a big bottle of sunscreen so next time he goes outside, we won't have this problem. And you just that just happened to you today, huh? <laughs> just today, so I'm, I'm in the first stages of this. We'll see. So protect yourself. Yeah. Protect yourself, people. It's getting hot out there. Yeah, speaking of hot out there, you know what we have, Jake? A whole bunch going on. Uh, we have our own radio station. Which is super fire. Yeah. So if you want to listen to Jake and I 24-7, and, and by the way, audience, you know, you can tell us thank you because Jake and I just geeked out over a whole bunch of military stuff, and but we didn't record it in the show because we've, we've heard you, right? <laughs> oh, but you know what, Jake? <laughs> we may have something new coming up. Speaking of people yes, that we... geek out about military stuff, we are in the yeah. preliminary stages of putting together the Oil & Gas Veterans Podcast. So if you're a company out there and you support veterans and if you want to get involved in the oil and gas industry or you're already in the oil and gas industry, reach out to me. Um, I'd love to talk to you because we're looking for a sponsor, but that's, gonna be, that's just going to be a great show. And so we're actually looking to do that from uh, either a pub or a bar, keeping it very uh, military-friendly. And it's probably definitely going to be our first explicit podcast, right? It will be our first explicit podcast. <laughs> Yeah, so we're looking forward to that. We'll keep uh, everybody informed. Um, you know, we're always preaching about going to the LinkedIn uh, OGGN page. Well, you need to do it if you haven't, because that's the first place that we'll announce that show. Um, and it'll be, if it happens, which I, I plan for it to happen, it'll happen in the next couple months. So good stuff. So we're on the road this week, Mark. Where are we going? We are actually going to Tulane Energy Club this Thursday. So Jake will get the show out just in time for you to realize you could have made it, but you didn't, unless you live in that New Orleans area. So we're going to be there Thursday evening, April 13th, speaking out there. Um, if uh, you're, you're a student organization or a university, we have some great rates. Uh, we'd love to come speak to students. Uh, reach out to Jake and I, and we'd be happy to share the details. Um, and Jake, we're also going to be at OTC. OTC is right around the corner. So you and I are going to be recording from the Red Wing booth, um, and then Patrick and I will also be recording from the Red Wing booth. And then all of us are going to head over to the Caterpillar booth and Paige is going to launch her oil and gas industry leaders podcast from that booth, and she's going to interview us. Um, and we keep saying this, but Paige is giving away two hundred dollars steak dinners. So uh, uh, pay attention to what she's doing, because if nothing else, you can get fed very well. <laughs> and none of this would be possible without our on-road sponsor. So Lee Heck and Harrison, uh, they're global experts in talent management. Basically, every oil and gas company I know of uses them. If you're an oil and gas company and you're looking to have some work with leadership and workforce and workforce transformation, reach out to them. A great company. Uh, they're making all of our travel possible. And like I said earlier, if you're a trade association, company event, conference, schools, sales, marketing meeting, whatever, and you're like Jake and I to come talk, reach out to us. We'd we'll be happy to do so. But this is our first Friday Q&A, isn't it, Jake? Yes, it is. So just like every other first Friday of the month, it's a chance for you guys to write in, ask us questions, and hopefully we have some awesome responses for you. So you guys really drive this show. We've got a whole bunch of questions lined up. So let's go ahead and dive into it. Let's do it. So first up is a question from Samuel List. He's a student at the University of Wisconsin, Madison Department of Geoscience. Uh, he writes, 
Hi guys, my name is Samuel Liss and I'm a senior studying geology and business at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I'm a really big fan of the show and I've been listening ever since this past summer when I worked in downtown Houston for a small oil and gas company as a geologist prospecting plays in the scoop and stack of Oklahoma. I have a passion for the geosciences and the oil and gas industry, but I'm not sure what type of research or what field I want to specialize in when I get to graduate school. After working in Houston, where it seems like the geologists have focused on petroleum engineering and petroleum geology, I was wondering which areas within geosciences do not get the attention and dedication of, of research that is necessary for advancing the oil and gas industry. Uh, great question, Samuel. Um, so you heard us talk a whole bunch in the past shows about big data analytics. That's one place that you really need as, as a geoscientist to really get involved with. But there's other new stuff out there. And, and I'm seeing a lot of this stuff develop. Nobody's figured it out yet. But uh, things like uh, electromagnetic uh, and, and potential fields in the geosciences, along with geochemical and then things like satellite and satellite imaging. It's all new technologies that the geoscientists uh, part of oil and gas is looking at to help them in their work. And if people don't understand what a geoscientist does, they basically um, help the upstream part of the, of the oil and gas industry figure out where there's recoverable oil and what it's going to take to recover it. They do the science, the, the geophysics science, or before they actually start to drill, and then actually while they're drilling. So that world's going to change rather dramatically because of technology. I think we've talked about this before, but we've had measurement while drilling for a while and measurement while drilling is sensors behind the drill bit that actually measures different things, all kinds of stuff. But one of the things that's new about measurement while drilling is that not only now do we get it in real time and you combine that with the bits that we can steer, but once you start doing big data analytics and machine learning with those two existing technologies, um, you now have a machine that can steer the drill bit based upon the data that's pulling out in real time. So that's the world that the geoscientists go to. So, um, Samuel, if, if, if uh, you go look big data analytics, machine learning, Internet of Things, cognitive, that sort of stuff combined with your geoscience backgrounds could put you way ahead of everybody else. And I'm actually glad, Jake, that we uh, read this question off first. We've gotten some feedback, and I haven't had a chance to talk to you. But one of the things that we've gotten some feedback on is that you and I both know this industry, and so sometimes we don't break things down. So earlier I could have just said measurement while drilling instead of backing up breaking it down. So I think we're going to try to make a conscious effort to break some of this stuff down. And audience, if, if you like this, let us know by leaving us a review, because we'll continue to do so. So hopefully Samuel answers your question. What's the next one, Jake? Uh, up next is a question from Steve Johnson with Synergetic. Uh, dear Jake, first, I enjoy and anticipate listening to your podcast weekly. My question is concerning investors slash venture capital. We are a very young construction company with incredible year-over-year -year growth. Even during the recent downturn, we have opportunities for growth in the Permian Basin. It requires us considering a capital injection if we are to take advantage of the opportunity. Banks are risk-adverse and require excess collateral. Factoring working capital companies exclude progressive construction companies such as ours. It appears that our last avenue is investors slash venture capitalists. If we were to continue on our current growth curve, any assistance, advice, or information will be greatly appreciated. Uh, Jake, awesome. that's your world. <laughs> I'm going to let you this answer is, that one. All right. So my first question would be how much money are you trying to raise? And you said you're kind of in the growth phase. Uh, and I guess my solid answer would really depend on that. But there's a couple different ways you can go with that. Um, anytime that you're raising money, the first avenue should be friends and family. Uh, if you're looking to raise something probably less than a million dollars, anything more than that, obviously, it's kind of a stretch. Uh, it's the lowest hanging fruit, but it's, sometimes it's the hardest money to ask for. You know, if you borrow $100,000 from grandma and your company tanks, grandma's probably not going to be too happy with you, right? Um, a couple of other routes would be angel investors, traditional VC firms, 
uh, or equity crowdfunding is a new uh, a new hot thing. Um, so what I would do, um, since I'm kind of in this process myself again, uh, is you need to take a targeted approach regardless of which route that you want to go. Um, so it helps to know uh, what the investors are interested in. So like what segments are they interested in energy or construction or big data or software? Um, what their t- typical investment size is, what stage they typically invest in, whether that's seed, whether that's growth, uh, or if they only invest in certain geographical regions, maybe they only invest in Texas, or they only invest in a certain demographic, maybe uh, alumni of Texas A&M or veterans or whatever it may be. So it helps to know that. So it helps to, to kind of do your research. And I think a lot of people don't do the research and they just kind of do a, a shotgun blast to, you know, a thousand investors. Um, and then they're kind of surprised when they don't really get much back. So really, really do your homework on who you want to invest in you, not just from a money standpoint, but also they're going to have some say in your in your business. Um, so it's important to find somebody that you, you mesh with and that your vision aligns. Um, just to have a good relationship there. Because it's not always just just about the money. The money is important, but there's a whole lot more that comes with that. Um, other than that, uh, there's a couple other good resources. I would say AngelList is extremely important regardless of whatever way you want to actually raise money. Um, it's a good funding platform. Uh, there's a lot of syndicates and stuff that can come in there. It's good exposure. Another one's called Gust. Um, I'll put links for both of those in the show notes. Uh, so make profiles on both of those. It's a great way to showcase your deck like, which is extremely essential. Uh, I won't go into like full into decks, but just Google, you know, venture capital decks, uh, and also Google a list of questions that VCs will most commonly ask. Um, so you can provide really, really good answers for those, and then use those to build your deck. Um, the money's out there; you just got to find it um, and just be really, really diligent um, and take a lot of no's. Yeah. So Jake, it sounds like everything else you just need to do the work required up front. You just got to do, do the legwork up front. Um, there's really no easy way. Like raising venture capital is in theory easy, but there's, there's a lot that goes into it. And it really does help to know people. Uh, having a warm introduction to either a venture capital uh, firm or angel investors goes a long ways. It goes a lot further than just sending out cold emails or cold calling uh, some of these firms. Because think about how many emails, how many calls do they get all the time? And they're just completely inundated with there's just too many deals. Um, so you, you've got to find some way to stand out and kind of break through the noise. Um, another thing that I mentioned, but I didn't really talk about was equity crowdfunding. There's a, there's a platform called fundable. Um, they're pretty, I would say they're kind of up and coming. Uh, they've, they've pushed a lot of money through their platform. I've seen multiple companies raise as high as $5 million through the platform. And that's usually from less than 10 investors. Um, so it's a cool way to, you know, Put your company up there, um, you know, show your traction, show your growth, show your revenue, whatever. It's only released to investors who are uh, interested, um, and you can raise money that way. And that is equity crowdfunding. So it's a it's a unique unique way to raise the money, and it's a unique way to uh, get in front of investors. Um, they have like a network of like thirty five thousand investors, I think. Yeah, and the other thing, Jake, is there are a lot of uh, venture capital events, and 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 oil and gas. It seems like they came out of nowhere. It seems like. You know, 10, 15 years ago, there was none. And now there's quite a few where you actually go and pitch to these investors. And I'm sure that if, you, if, if um, Steve spent a little time on Google, he could probably come up with a, you know, a dozen of these events. Yeah. And if you have any more questions, Steve, um, you know, feel free to, to email me or reach out or however. We, and we can take this offline. And I'd be you know, glad to help you out with that. Yeah, great question, by the way. Good answer, Jake. Uh, up next, Andrew Fager. Actually, I had a conversation with Andrew Fager uh, probably about a month ago. 
really cool guy. Uh, he's doing some pretty cool stuff in this space. Uh, he writes, uh, I have a question for Mark. You've predicted that unconventionals will go global this year outside the U.S. Uh, where do you predict the biggest activity will be? Who's going to be the next biggest producer of oil and gas from type plays? I'll let you answer that one first because there's two questions. Yeah, so that's a really hard one to call because of the second question that Jake Scary asked me. Um, if you look at a, a, a big period of time, so if we look at look out over the next 50 years, I think China is going to be one of the big unconventional players. Not now um, and not in the next 10 years, but over a big period of time, they just have so much shale up there. Um, it's it's going to be tremendous, and they need it, right? They, they would rather produce it themselves and buy it on the global market. So on a big period of time, I have to peg China. In a short amount of time, you know, Chevron's doing a lot of work in Argentina in their shell place. I would say short-term-wise, that'd probably be the next big, but they won't be a big producer. They will be a producer. So what's the next question, Jake? Second part. So second question is, I've heard counter-arguments that unconventionals will have difficulty going global due to the lack of infrastructure and services. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's what's holding everything back, that infrastructure. So here in the U.S., we have both the knowledge of how to get it out of the ground profitably and the infrastructure so we can bring it to market. Most of the world doesn't have that. Um, I mean, you know, so so these countries are going to have to build the infrastructure because that's part of the financial equation. Just because you can get it out the ground, if you can't bring it to market, it's worthless. And you have to be able to bring it to market in a way that um, doesn't eat up all of your profit margin, right? It has to be a lower low part of your of your business is moving around. And that's basically pipelines. That's the best, safest way, cheapest way to move uh, both gas and oil around the country. And that's that's a lot of CapEx and venture investment. And it takes a long time to build infrastructure pipelines. Uh, we're lucky here in the U.S. is that we've had decades and decades, and we've had the financial models that work so we could build that infrastructure. So he's absolutely right. That's, that's what's going to keep them from going global in the near future. A hundred years from now, uh, they're, they're going to be all over the place. So Andrew, if you're looking to start a business and you want to move to like China and get in the infrastructure and services business, <laughs> it's a good place to look. Yeah, there's a lot of opportunity there, that's for damn sure. <laughs> Great question, Andrew. Uh, up next, uh, this is from Hunter Higgins. He writes, Mr. LaCour, I hope this message finds you well. I'm not sure if you remember me, but I sent you and James Hahn an email about possibly speaking at Pepperdine Law a few months ago. I'm sorry if we weren't able to finance the engagement. It certainly would have been a wonderful opportunity for students interested in oil and gas. A few weeks ago, I remember you stating on the podcast something about an oil and gas company that had set up a program to pay for tuition and offer to hire students upon graduation. It helped to ensure that students in that region were trained in the specific field that the company needed to staff. Like you, I think this is a wonderful concept that other companies should adopt. Do you remember the specifics of the company or the school that were involved in this program? I would like to research and write an article on the topic. I'm still an avid listener of the podcast. Congratulations on your continued growth. Yeah, so let me tell you what's funny about, about Hunter is he was so pumped up about this answer. I told him I was going to do it on the first Friday Q&A. He goes, I, I can't wait. Can you just please tell me now? <laughs> and so the company I was specifically talking about at that time is, is FMC Technologies. And they actually stood up a university and staffed um, in, Ni in Nigeria um, so that they could grow their own subsea engineers. And the way it worked was basically they'd pay for the kids to go to school and they agreed to go work for um, FMC. But that's not a unique thing. Our industry as a whole does this all over the world. Um, all the major, Chevron, Shell, Exxon, BP, Total, has university partnership um, arrangements where they partner with universities all over the world and they fund them or and or they give them expertise, right? So what what's a better way to teach 
um, mechanical engineering that have an Exxon mechanical engineer go teach the class. And, and they do that. And they in areas of the world where it makes sense, they will pay for kids to go to school. Um, and that includes not just going to school, but room and board and everything. And in return, the kids agree to go work for them. So there's just a bunch of university partnership programs. And that's been going on for as long as I've been in this industry for 20 years. Now, the other reason I'm glad that, that we had this question is what happened is a while back when you reached out to us um, to go speak, um, they couldn't afford to pay us. And what we've learned since then for our whole audience is that if you're a university out there and you don't have the money to pay for us, it's okay. We can find a sponsorship to pick up the cost. And and the thing is, we don't make money. At, on universities, we give them a very special deal. We don't make money off of it. It's just enough to cover our travel there and our time. Um, but you know, if you're, if you're a university organization out there and you don't have the money to pay for Jake and I to come, it's okay. Reach out to us anyway, and we'll find a sponsor. So that's that's some good side stuff. I'm glad that, that um that Hunter reached out to us. And it was just funny that I had to answer him before the first Friday Q&A. Great question, Hunter. And I think it's so awesome that our industry does that for, yeah, and well, not only for themselves, but also for, you know, prospective students. Yeah. So I actually had the Discovery Channel or a production company that works with Discovery Channel reach out to me a, a week or so ago um, for something that's going on, an idea they have in oil and gas. And when I explained to them how we do this sort of things, they were shocked. They didn't know because our industry doesn't honk its own horn you don't see you know fmc talking about stand-up universities or chevron talking about you know uh, leading the world research in the fight against aids or exxon leading the world research in the fight against malaria we, we don't pat ourselves on the back I, I think we should do more of that not not pr not um promote ourselves in a way that's not true but just talk about the facts of what we do but so many people out there don't understand you're right jake that our industry as a whole is very committed to its people even to our future workers um, and it's, it's just a wonderful beautiful thing up next is a question from justin sanders who's a petroleum engineering student from the university of oklahoma uh he's got a few questions so let's kind of break these down he writes hey guys so my question pertains to big data in respect to the future of reservoir engineering and it is quite long, so please feel, feel free to pick and choose what you want. Um, my questions are as follows. What role, if any, do you think big data analytics will play in reservoir engineering of unconventional reservoirs? Specifically, what are your thoughts on uh, the increasing need for new reservoir engineering techniques and evaluating managing the complexities of unconventional reservoirs, i.e. organic rich shales? So I think big data, we talked about this a little bit earlier, I think big data is going to play a huge, huge role in this. I actually think the combination of machine learning and big data analytics um, is going to totally revolutionize our ability to profitably and safely get oil and gas out of the ground, especially the unconventionals like the shell plays. Um, the, the, the machine can see so many things and look at so many data streams at the same time that a human never could. The machine never gets tired. Um, and when you start doing the huge analytics, I mean, a human simply can't look at a spreadsheet that has, you know, 700,000 columns in it. A machine can do that in a second. And so the machines are going to actually learn things that we will never see, right, just because we're not wired that way. And I just think it's going to totally – and I, I'm saying I think it's, it's starting to happen already. I've, I've seen some stuff out there that is like freaky cool stuff, and it's going to continue to go that way. So, yeah, I, I think – Reservoir engineering and unconventionals in a few years is going to be totally a super high-tech industry. It, it's already getting that way. I think it's only going to get there faster. And big data is extremely advanced for oil and gas, right? And by oil and gas measure, right? Um, but in every other industry, people are kind of segueing from big data, and they're moving beyond that. They're moving beyond machine learning, and they're going into deep learning, which is really a way that you would actually train artificial intelligence. Call me crazy. 
but that will be the future of oil and gas. Oh no, AI will definitely be the, the future of oil and gas. It's um, we just hope it doesn't turn to Skynet. And, and for all <laughs> my my non geeky people out there, that's the whole uh, AI behind the Terminator series movies. <laughs> Jake got it. All right. Uh, so the second question is, uh, if so, what do you think the transition will look like? Will existing reservoir engineers have to make the transition from conventional methods? How so? Or will be there an or will there be a new job opening for data scientists in the industry? Yeah. I'll say the latter of that, just because we've already seen that. Yeah, yeah. so Justin, there's a, the biggest demand right now in our industry globally that we can't fill is for data scientists. Now, let me tell you, there's a lot of companies out there looking at this, and they have data scientists, and they have all kinds of technical er experts. What they need, what is critical for them, is the knowledge that's in these reservoir engineers' head. So I actually helped somebody just recently that was, a, um, he's actually a geologist. But instead of him competing with all the other geologists that are looking for work right now with oil and gas companies, I connected him to a technology company right in the space, and they were all over him because what was in his head was so valuable to them. So um, I, I, I think uh, I, I can tell you what theory is, and I can tell you what I think is going to happen. So I think a lot of the older reservoir engineers aren't going to want to learn the new new technology, and so they're just going they're going to fade away. Right? It doesn't mean they're going to lose their job, but eventually they'll they'll be replaced. Um, the younger rev reservoir engineers to get exposed to this, to get ahead of everybody and start learning this, to go jump light years ahead of all their competition. I mean, light years. Um, then you can see the opposite also happen. You can see data scientists and learn oil and gas, which is going to make them valuable. So you're actually creating more jobs than you would actually lose. And, and it could be high tech jobs. It could be cool. So looking at the entire job market across all industries, computer science and like uh, software developers, full stack developers have been like the top uh, it, most in-demand job for the last couple of years, uh, but now it's just been surpassed by actual data scientists. And that's because all of these industries who've traditionally run very antiquated, like ours, are realizing the power of the actual data that they have. And there's different ways that you can leverage that to drive efficiencies within their businesses. So yeah. I mean, data scientists are going to change the look world. At things like Facebook, right? So um, my wife orders furniture online from a company, a company called Wayport. Wayward or Wayport? I think it's Wayward. Right? Somehow Facebook knows I'm married to her, so it starts serving me ads about Wayward. Imagine <laughs> doing that in oil and gas. Imagine when some reservoir engineer goes to order um, testing somewhere, and it knows, the machine learning knows to say, hey, maybe instead of this testing, you need this type of testing. Here's the company that does it. it just going to make his job better and more accurate. And, and, and all that stuff is here. Um, and it's and it's it's invading our industry very fast, and it's good for the industry. Um, it allows us to get oil and gas out of the ground quicker, safer, and more environmentally responsible. It's, and it's also just really cool stuff. You need to finish and ask his, his last little part. So finally, I would also like to take the chance to ask you guys if you'd be interested in scheduling a tech talk with the University of Oklahoma Society of Petroleum Engineering chapter. These meetings usually field about 100 or so students who are petroleum engineering majors or are interested in the petroleum industry. If so, please send me an email. We can discuss further. I think that sounds awesome. Yeah, Jake's already scheduled for October. You just don't know. Isn't that cool? <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Another trip up to Oklahoma. Yep, we're going to make another Love trip it. to Oklahoma. Let's hope that this time I don't get pulled over for speeding. I know. We'll just drive a little slower next time. All right, up next, we have a... <laughs> two emails from Miles. Uh, I think his name is Miles Ander. Um, so the first one he writes, uh, there's been a lot of talk recently about the OPEC supply cuts and their impact on oil prices. And it seems quite evident 
that these supply cuts didn't have the desired impact of raising prices to levels that OPEC wanted as the U.S. shale producers ate up the difference, uh, preventing a serious price recovery. We seem to forget that the main incentive for the OPEC countries isn't to increase dividends to shareholders, but rather to continue to fund social programs and prop up their governments in their home countries, which is true. The average deficit of the OPEC countries in 2016 was 10%. Uh, it was similarly as high in 2015, which is an unsustainable deficit. Uh, to put this in perspective, the EU allows a deficit of 3% a year for member countries. These countries are these countries are in OPEC to maintain some consistency in supply and in tandem price. The profits they derive from oil, which occur in part due to the collusion the OPEC allows, fund the home governments at home and ensure stability in these countries. My three-part question is... Has the paradigm shift? Okay, stop right there. So if I understand what you're asking, Miles, the, the paradigm is shifting because OPEC realizes that in order, and, and you're absolutely right, um, it's all about keeping their social programs running to keep their youth employed so the youth don't radicalize and overthrow the government. But um, the paradigm is shifting, and OPEC is realizing that just being a net exporter crude, they can no longer fund themselves um, as profitably as they did before. So now they're looking at other ways to fund themselves besides being a, a net exporter crude. So yes, the paradigm is shift. Keep going. Uh, so OPEC makes up 30 million barrels of production out of the 90 million barrels of production uh, so far used daily in the world. Has the percentage of oil ever been lower since their inception in the 70s? Yeah, those numbers are wrong because we burn about 20 million barrels a day here in the U.S. I don't know off the top of my head what the global, um, but let, let's just say that he was a typo or something. So um Thirty minutes or so barrels used there. Is there a percentage of oil production ever been lower since inception in the seventies? I actually don't know the answer to that. I could go do some research, but I tell you what happened in the seventies is because of the U.S. support of um, Israel, um, OPEC cut the supply, which drove prices through the roof and caused uh, shortages for fuel and electricity prices to go up and everything. So they basically used oil as a weapon. Um, they've done that several times since then. Um, it happened in, in the 80s, in the early 80s. It happened again in the 90s. It happened again just recently. Um, so hope that answers that question. Keep going, Jake. If oil prices continue at this rate, which is way below the need of rate by a lot of these countries to ensure a reasonable deficit, could these countries theoretically increase their production in order to make up for the shortfall they, they are seeing due to the decrease in the price of oil? They could. The problem with that is it no longer works the way it used to work. They don't. They, there's too many other suppliers out there, us and Russia, basically, that counter their ability to control the the supply on the market. Keep going, Jake. This one's actually very detailed. Do these, yeah. Do these countries even have the reserve capacity to increase supply, even if they wanted to? Yes. <laughs> so, so of the recoverable barrels here in 2017, OPEC has about 80 percent of the recoverable barrels in the world. <laughs> so they have the supply. Um, now, I fully expect that that number is going to shift. Um, if, if you pay attention to anything uh, with the U.S. Uh, uh, operators with barrels on reserve, every year our barrels on reserves go up. Um, so, But that's a big percentage. When you have 80% of the recoverable oil in the world, that's that's a lot of production capacity. Um, but so like Miles said, had wrote in. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say he wrote in again. Another, yeah. another question. So let's, let's get a second question. All right. So Miles had another question. Uh, he writes, well, actually, it's more of a comment, uh, but when y'all were discussing the Texas Railroad Commission in the March 27th episode and you blatantly dismissed people's, Sierra's Club's, concerns over whether companies should be allowed to donate money to the Railroad Commission, you scoffed at the idea that there would be uh, an ethical issue. 
Allowing a company to give donations to its governing organization is unprecedented is obviously uh, does create a conflict of interest. Just to throw a few instances out there, publicly traded companies are not allowed to donate money to the SEC. Public accounting firms can't do- donate money to PCAOB. Law firms can't give money to the Department of Justice because all these instances would obviously uh, create conflicts of interest. I agree that the commission's mandate should be extended, but God forbid something bad happened, a spill or an incident. And if it was revealed that the firm in question had made donations to the commission, it's not hard to see how people could peg that as collusion and that the money was a tit-for-tat kind of affair, regardless of whether said incident... <laughs> regardless of whether said accident was collusion or purely a bad coincidence. We could see some serious backlash, and we don't want to see public sentiment turn against the oil and gas industry here in Texas. We don't want people to believe that the regulatory body over the industry is somehow in the pocket of the industry, and the best way to prevent that is to ensure that the funding for the commission isn't based upon the discretion of companies whom they are chartered to regulate. Yeah, and so, Jake, this tells me that I just kind of went through in the last show really too quick. I probably should have went through it in more detail. So I I agree 100% with Miles in that any oil and gas company that is is under any type of investigation should not ethically donate money to the Railroad Commission. But I still have no problems with oil and gas companies as a whole donating. I mean, people don't have a problem with Nike donating to Major League Baseball or for Adidas, uh, uh, you know, donate to NFL or, and so on and so on. And, and the Railroad Commission, the problem in Texas is the Railroad Commission um, makes its money by uh, drilling permits. Well, when your drilling permits go down, the number of drilling permits go down, their revenue goes down. But the Railroad Commission is so vital to both our prosperity and our ability to protect the environment um, that they need to be funded. So if you have companies like Chevron or, or Anadarko or Statoil that want to donate money, I see no problem with that. Um, and, but I do agree that a company that's under any type of investigation should not donate money. And I think the Railroad Commission has an ethical obligation to not accept any money from any company that's under donate. You know, but still, I see no problem. And then you get into the whole thing of think of all the supply companies out there. I mean, I have no problem with a, you know, a drill pipe manufacturer donate money to a railroad commission, which actually I know happens. So th- there's a way to do this correctly. I just like to see the Texas Railroad Commission be able to fund itself in a way that doesn't make them have to either tax or have other types of uh, revenue generate from the actual operators themselves. You know, the drilling permits are enough. Um, you don't want them to start taxing, you know, pipelines excessively or start taxing refineries excessively here in Texas. If, if they can make up that deficit money by volunteer donations from other places, I think it's a good thing. What do you think about that, Jake? I agree uh, 100%. I can see, I, I see where he's coming from. Um, and I, I agree 100%. If there is a company that is under investigation, they should not be giving donations to the regulatory body. Uh, if they're not under investigation, I think it's perfectly fine. Because I think the examples that you made, especially with like the Nike and the Adidas donating to MLB or NFL or something like that, you know, I think it makes sense. But I think, yeah, if they're under investigation, it is a conflict of interest. Um, so there should be some kind of law against that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So hopefully Miles will answer your question. I tell you what, Jake, Mike Miles spent a whole bunch of time <laughs> writing his questions. It's actually, I just want to say, I really appreciate his level of engagement. Yeah. You know, so if you guys have, we don't we don't try to shy away from from a lot of questions or long answers. Or if you want to challenge us on something, please do because it makes it really interesting. Um, so thanks, Miles. We yeah. really appreciate that, man. And sometimes we're wrong, right? So if you push back on us and, and we go do the research we're wrong, you've heard me do it before. I'll be the first one to admit when I make a mistake or if, yep. if I didn't understand all the facts involved. We want to know that ourselves. I mean, we're, we love our industry. We're in it. We want to learn stuff too. And if we learn from an audience, that's just awesome. 
And speaking of awesome, Jake, we have a winner. We do. Just like every other week, Nathan Olson, Derek Mann from Cyclone Drilling. You are this week's winner. Yeah, congratulations, Nathan. You have won this awesome Red Wing Offshore bag, which, Jake, it's getting ridiculous the amount of cash people keep offering me for this thing. It's a really cool bag, though. If you'd like to win one of these cool bags like Nathan did, it's pretty simple. Go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Put your information in there. We draw one lucky winner a week. No purchase necessary. See official site for rules and details. Up next is a rig count for the week. Mark, let's start placing some bets because I think your 1300 is going to, I think it's going to happen. So we're, we're, we're taking bets now. Uh, so this week we're up 15 for a total of 839. Wow. Just fantastic. That's 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 awesome. It's nice to see that the rig count break 800. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, and you know what, Jake? I didn't actually take time to put any events on the deck. I know there's some coming up. <laughs> My fault. We don't have them in the news. Um, but if you'd like to get the monthly n- a newsletter we send out every month with all the oil and gas events that, that are worth going to, plus things like free passes or invitations to events that the public doesn't know about. It's really simple. Jacob put a link in the show note. Go sign up for our monthly email. Uh, we don't spam you. We, we take all this information. It's very valuable. Stick in your inbox once a week for free. It's extremely comprehensive. Any any and every event that you need to go to, especially, like I mean, a lot of it's like Houston-based, but a lot of it's also outside of Houston. Just sign up for the email. It's yeah. super easy. Mark and, does all the work for you. Yeah, and you should really should sign up if you want to go to OTC because the next next one come out, the May, which will come out the very end of April, we'll have free OTC passes. And it's almost impossible to get your hands on free OTC passes unless you know people. Well, I know people. So if you want free pass OTC, go sign up for the newsletter because um, once the May one goes out, you'll be out of luck. So if you like what we're doing, just like always, please leave us a review. Leave us a comment. Um, it really helps us just grow the exposure to the show. It helps us bring on more sponsors, helps us just everything, everything that we make just goes back into the show and just helps us grow this. So, uh, if you could just take two seconds, leave us a review, uh, that would be amazing. Yeah. And if, uh, you want to ask a question for the next first Friday Q and a, it's very simple. Go to oilandgasthisweek.com, click on ask a question, throw in your information and we'll throw you in the show for, for next month. And then if you like our show, go join our LinkedIn group. It's really simple. Just type in OGGN, which, Jake, we got a new logo for OGGN. It looks fantastic, doesn't yeah. it? It's not on the group yet. I have to, uh, we have to get paged uh, to fix that. But uh, we got a new logo. Uh, the websites could get redone. Um, we have some new materials coming out. We're actually, OGGNs could turn into almost like a magazine type of online presence. And we're going to end up reaching out to some select people to help produce some content. So if you would like to get your content, and it has, needs to be good, useful, valuable content in front of the OGG and audience, reach out to me, and we'll tell you how you can get on this get, this train, because this train's going somewhere, Jake. It is. Yep. And then we have a Facebook group. Jake, you actually built a Facebook group, didn't you? Yeah, the Facebook group. It's uh, growing pretty steadily. Uh, it's obviously a lot smaller than the LinkedIn group, because it's new. Uh, but if you guys want to check it out, I think there's there's a, a there has the potential to be a lot of engagement on Facebook. We've seen some people posting and stuff. Um, I just feel like LinkedIn is getting a little crowded, a little busy, a uh, little noises. Um, but yeah, Facebook is a it's a good place to go. Uh, check it out, Oil and Gas Global Network. Jump in the conversation. Yeah, and then uh, leave us a review. If uh, you leave us a review, we'll give you a shout out. We don't always read the reviews. It depends on how busy Jake and I are, but hopefully next <laughs> show we'll, we'll go through a couple of reviews. It helps us just get, get in front of more people and it helps your peers realize that this is a good podcast. So take a couple minutes, leave us a review. We'll be very, very thankful that you did. Uh, is that about it, Jake? That wraps it up, man. Yeah, you ready to get out of here? Let's do it. All right, folks, do great work. Pay it forward. And you-